Great. So we are here to talk about climate change and the arts. Of course, if you didn't know that already, now you do. Um, but why are we here to talk about climate change? Well, at its most basic, of course, we want to limit uh, global temperatures rising to one, no more than 1.5 degrees C uh, to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Um, that's kind of why we're here to talk about climate change and the arts. Uh, but why 1.5 degrees C? We'll start with the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was created by the United Nations. Um, that was created to provide policymakers with regular scientific assessments on climate change. And in their 2018 uh, special report, they concluded that limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels was essential to avoiding the worst impacts of the climate crisis and irreversible change. Now, 2021, uh, a little bit doom and gloom, but they cited a code red for humanity. Uh, this new report said that under all emission scenarios considered by scientists, both the targets of 1.5 and the even less desirable one of 2 degrees C will be broken this century unless huge cuts in carbon take place. Uh, the 2022 report uh, that came out this year in fact said that we have less than eight years to cut global emissions by 50%, which is a very big thing. Um, and that's why it's so fantastic uh, that you are watching this thing today and that we can have this discussion about climate change in the arts because action wants to happen as soon as it can. Um, but why is 1.5 degrees C such a large number? You know, if the temperatures go up and down by far more than that in the weather, we don't really tend to care. Um, well, to try and put it into perspective a little bit, since the end of the last ice age, which was 11,500 years ago, so 11.5 millennia, global temperatures have risen by 6 degrees C. Global temperatures going up and down, that is normal across a very long time. But what's abnormal, and why we're worried about 1.5 degrees C, is that over 1 degree of that temperature rise has happened in just the last 100 years. So 11,500 years for five degrees, and then since our industrial revolution, when we start to burn lots of fossil fuels, release lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we have seen over one degree C in 100 years. That's very fast um, and why scientists are concerned. Um, but to give another example, that's perhaps a little bit easier to um, kind of uh, relate to. The human body temperature sits at a healthy point, generally when it's between 36 and 37 degrees C. Uh, now, if our body temperature changes to just below 35 degrees C, that's when we start to worry about the cold. We start to worry about getting ill and possibly even dying uh, from cold, such as things like hypothermia. Now, conversely, if our body goes to above just 38 degrees C, that's when we start to worry about heat, getting ill, possibly even dying from things like fever and heat death. The point I'm making here is that there is only one degree C difference either way between becoming ill and worrying about things either way in temperature. So when we're talking about 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C or even 3 in the future, these are big numbers and can in some cases literally be a kind of life or death scenario for a lot of forms of life on Earth. So it is very serious. Um, it's not the most positive thing to be talking about all the time, but it is important we're honest with one another so that we can take action quickly. Uh, but how do we achieve 1.5 degrees C more importantly? Uh, well, of course, we need to reduce our carbon footprints. I'm sure everyone knows that. Um, a carbon footprint is the amount of carbon dioxide or emissions that are released into the atmosphere as a result of the activities of a particular individual, so you or I, um, organisations, so our theatre companies, dance companies, arts companies, uh, communities, so our whole art sector together, or the country and the system that we are within. Uh, and we want to reach net zero by 2050. Uh, net zero is the target of completely negating the amount of greenhouse gases produced by human activity. And that is to be achieved by reducing emissions and implementing methods of absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Essentially, we want to reduce our carbon footprints right down to zero by 2050 at the latest. Uh, that's the plan. Um, what I'm going to do now is very quickly go through a few different areas that are really good to consider in terms of reducing our carbon footprint, the main areas, um, and this is as individuals but also in our practice as artists as well, and we'll get into the more specifics a bit later on. Um, but the first one being transport, and the main thing here really um, is to consider reducing travel where possible, and you're going to see that this is a theme throughout. If we reduce our consumption, we actually reduce our need to worry about a carbon footprint, because if we're not travelling, there isn't a carbon footprint. Um, so consider whether we need to travel for work and things like this, whether we can meet online such as this, um, and if we do need to travel, first of all considering using public transport, cycling or walking, and if need be as well, sharing travel with others. Um, and beyond that, if we can't use those things, consider 
going electric in terms of electric cars and things like that. But I should say that uh, even having an electric car at the moment is a bigger carbon footprint than if you just use public transport and things like this. So it is still preferable to reduce public transport, cycle and walk, and then consider going electric. Uh, moving swiftly forward, um, the next one is food and our diets. Um, and the big thing here to consider is animal-based food versus plant-based food. Um, plant-based food does, unfortunately, for people who enjoy meat, and I certainly used to, um, plant-based food just has a much lower carbon footprint than animals does. Um, but we also want to consider where our food comes from and whether it's in season or not. If we can eat something that is in season, so being grown right now and that is local to us, we cut out all of the travel emissions based on getting that food from Colombia, for example. Um, I'm not going to go through this uh, graph, don't worry, in detail, but it's just there to kind of give you an idea really of the difference in emissions and carbon footprints between meat, meat and dairy and plant-based options. Those ones at the top, much, much bigger than any of the plant-based options down at the bottom. Um, and even if you're not going to go vegan, because far be it from me, I absolutely don't want to tell anybody what to eat. It's totally your choice and should be. Um, but if you are considering your carbon footprint, even if you're not going to go vegan or even if you're not going to go vegetarian, what you can see here is the big things is cutting down on our red meat consumption and our dairy consumption. Beef, lamb and cheese, they are the big, big emitters. So even if we can just cut down our consumption of those things, we dramatically reduce our carbon footprint. So as I say, we want to consider a plant-based diet if we can, uh, consider an in-season diet and consider a local diet. Also, I guess, uh, not buy more than we need. Uh, the next one is energy. And the main thing here really is uh, to consider being on a green tariff, to consider using renewable energy such as solar, wind, uh, geothermal, there's even sand batteries now, I think, but we won't go into that. Um, using those things rather than any fossil fuel based energy source. Um, there's the whole thing here of demand versus supply. So again, if we reduce the amount of energy that we are using, uh, we reduce our carbon footprint straight away, regardless of whether it's renewable or non-renewable. So reducing consumption is important here. And where we do use energy, we want to consider efficiency. So using efficient technology and efficient light bulbs, things like this, such as LEDs, um, and avoiding any waste, avoiding using energy when we really don't want to. So reducing, I suppose. Um, next one is waste and consumption. Uh, the big thing with waste is that we want to dispose of waste responsibly. Um, any food waste, we want to ensure that that is being properly sort of composted and things like this. Um, and any other, other waste we want to uh, be recycling possibly. And the reason for this is that if the food waste gets into landfill, uh, it starts to decompose and we have lots of methane emissions going off. And of course, the more waste there is in landfill, the more machinery needs to deal with that waste and that machinery consumes lots of lots of fuel and has a big carbon footprint itself so uh reduce consumption is again a thing here dispose of stuff properly but also if we reduce the amount we consume the reduced amount of packaging that we buy we just reduce our waste anyway so that reduces our carbon footprint um big thing here though is yes reduce what we buy when we have bought things can we reuse them can we give them a long life and when they're broken can we repair them and if we can't repair them can we repurpose them into something else? And ultimately, can we share things with one another? Um, this kind of creates a thing called the circular economy, which again, we won't go into now, but it's really important within this conversation. Um, from an art side of things, I think the big thing to take from waste is anything that you buy, can you approach it with a mindset of, is it possible to have had a life before I use it? And is it possible for it to have a life after I use it? And if you can plan those things out, you're gonna dramatically reduce uh, your impact. Uh, moving swiftly on, the next one is fashion. Uh, now it is predicted as things currently stand that by around 2050, over a quarter of global emissions are going to come from fashion. That's how big fashion and fabrics impact is on the planet at the moment. Um, there's all sorts of ethical things alongside fashion as well. But the big thing we can do to reduce our impact is buy secondhand. There is more than enough clothes around the world um, for us to keep buying secondhand and have a new wardrobe every week if we want to. Uh, so buy secondhand, this avoids new things, it avoids all of the carbon footprint that comes from uh, new products. Uh, but if you are gonna buy new stuff, buy things that are where you can, built to last and make it last as well. Um, and ultimately, as with everything else, we reduce our consumption, we reduce our carbon footprint, when we have got stuff, we use it. If it's broken, repair it. If it can't be repaired, repurpose it into a cushion cover or something. And 
share your clothes, do some clothes swaps and things like this. One last thing I'd like to mention on this is that uh, whilst there are loads of clothes and we can be buying secondhand, there are certain people who are going to find it a little harder to be able to buy secondhand than others. Um, and so if you are in a position where it's easier for you, perhaps consider that maybe by taking a bit of a weight on your shoulders and buying secondhand more, that is enabling people who can't buy secondhand to buy those new uh, built to last products, uh, therefore kind of having a much more communal effect, which is good. Um, the next one, and I won't spend loads of time on this, is digital. This is one that a lot of people forget. Um, digital, I'm talking about technology we use, phones, cameras, um, laptops, streaming, all of these sorts of things, uh, you know, apps, social media. Um, and a lot of people, when they think of technology, they think, oh, it's to do with the power that we use. But the power we use for our phones and technology is actually really quite minimal compared to the amount of carbon footprint that we have when it comes to the data storage centers. So these are massive, massive data storage farms uh, that keep all of the data that we need from putting stuff in the cloud, from using apps, from social media, all of the, from texting, from emailing those storage centers consume a lot of energy so actually it's considering how much we go online and use online but the bigger thing is embodies carbon and um, ignore the text going on on this screen and just focus on the pie chart so as you can see those using networks using data centers that's about a quarter of a phone or a laptop and um, carbon footprint the energy usage is tiny it's less than one percent but the embodied carbon is 77% of the carbon footprint of technology. The embodied carbon is the carbon footprint from making that product. So essentially, if we are buying new technology regularly every year, every two years, we are that's what's making our carbon footprint bigger from digital, much more so than anything else. So we want to consider our usage and whether we need to use it all the time. Uh, but beyond that, really, we want to buy long life and efficient technology and give it a long life essentially with digital. Um, uh, the last couple here, nearly there, are uh, voting first of all. So if you are able to vote uh, for council members or MPs or youth council members or anything like that, we want to vote for people with green commitments and green credentials. We said we've got less than eight years to reduce carbon footprint by 50% globally. So we need people in decision making positions uh, to be making the right green decisions for us. Um, and this is so important because Trumpism, so Donald Trump, majorly stalled global climate action uh, when in power by pulling us out of a Paris Agreement, which meant US were no longer committed to the 1.5 degree C. But also, even since Trump has left power, his legacy with the courts, and I'm sure we're all aware of what's going on with the courts there uh, from a women's rights perspective, but also from a climate change perspective, the courts are having a massive impact in a negative way. So it's so important that we have the right people making the right decisions. Um, and lastly, money. Of course, it's, it can be hard in the arts to get hold of money and get hold of funding. Um, so there's a whole thing there. Um, but if you can follow that money to its source, where's your funding coming from? Is it coming from a fossil fuel company kind of thing? And are you happy with that? Are you OK with that ethically? It's just worth considering. Uh, when we do use our money, can we make green investments? Can we be purchasing products and services from uh, organisations that are environmentally responsibility or artists who have environmental responsibility at the forefront of their work? Um, and lastly, how green is your bank as well? Where are you storing your, your funding and your money? And is that being invested in fossil fuels and stuff like that? And again, are you happy with that ethically? It's totally your decision with all of this. Don't want to dictate anything. Um, but to summarise, and I appreciate we've gone through this very, very quickly. From a transport perspective, we want to consider walking, cycling, using public transport and reducing travel where we can. From a dietary perspective, we want to consider plant-based, seasonal and local, and if nothing else, reducing red meat and dairy intake. From an energy perspective, we want to reduce consumption and switch renewables. Uh, from a waste perspective, we want to ensure that we responsibly dispose of things, reduce, reuse, recycle, um, and yeah, reduce consumption. From a fashion perspective, buying secondhand, buying made to making it last, um, and again, reducing consumption. From a te technology or digital perspective, we want to be using efficient and long life technology, and again, reducing consumption where we can. Um, and we want to make our vote count and invest and bank green where possible. Uh, I'm going to stop there and come back to the panel now. Um, Thank you very much for bearing with me on that. That was all a lot in a very short space of time. So if you didn't catch anything, that is okay. 
um, we'll have time at the end to talk about that or you can get in touch with Creative Youth and get in touch with me via them and we can go through that again. Um, what we're going to do now <laughs> is start properly and just in, uh, we'll introduce ourselves. So uh, Fern, would you mind introducing yourself and what, yeah, what you're about, what you're all about? <laughs> so my name is Fern, my pronouns are she, her. Um, I have brown hair, I'm wearing a black t-shirt and I'm in a room that has uh, a green and white wall. Um, so I'm from Coalesce Dance Theatre. Um, we are a contemporary dance organisation based in Manchester. Um, we've been working now since about 2017 and in the last few years we have created a piece of work that is specifically looking at climate change and how uh, young people, specifically sort of three plus, can engage in this theme and how uh, we can sort of give people the right tools and skills and empower people to feel like they can make a difference in, in the sort of world that they exist in and how we can share that message. And um, so that's become a massive part of the company and the organization uh, and what we do. Um, but it's sort of only as of the last two years really. So we're sort of going on a journey and we're still going on that journey and we can hold our hands up and say it's a, it's a learning curve. And I think everybody is learning all the time. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me and what, what I do. Thank you very much. Exciting to have you with us. Um, and Ruth, if you could do the same, what are you all about? What's going on? Um, hello, everyone. My name's Ruth Payton, uh, she, her, and I have sort of mousy hair, wearing glasses in a pink room because I'm not at home. I'm actually at a um, sustainable festival, so um, that ties in quite nicely. Uh, I'm a theatre designer. I work mostly in opera and particularly in work with some form of social engagement and I do that at the Royal Opera House and at the English National Opera. Amazing. I love that I didn't know you were at the festival. That's fantastic. I've yeah. done about that I can too. tell you about that. It's great. <laughs> um, and I, uh, the voice that was speaking to you over that presentation, um, I'm Robin Lyons. Uh, I'm he, him. Uh, I have sort of buzz cut brown hair, um, white presenting, blue eyes and very boring white background with a few few cupboards. Um, I'm also wearing the Sustainable Development Goals badge um, on my shirt, which if you don't know about, you should go and check out. Um, I'm the Artistic Director of Ergon Theatre, so we're one of the leading companies making uh, work about the climate crisis exclusively. Um, but I'm also a climate, liter climate leadership and carbon literacy trainer, so it's my job to go to businesses and tell them about the climate crisis and why why they should consider changing, basically. Um, Ergon Theatre, our big thing really is that we want to make work accessible to every, uh, make climate science accessible to everyone in educational, entertaining and empowering ways. Um, and we really do believe that the arts have that really important responsibility to be the communicating bridge between the science community um, and the public. Because um, it's quite hard for scientists a lot of the time at the moment. Um, but yes, that's me. Uh, we are going to crack on very swiftly um, and I'm going to offer a couple of provocations to, to Ruth and to Fern and I'll chip in uh, if I need to, if there's anything more to say. Um, and the first provocation I'd like to give um, is practice versus platforming. So which is more important, creating art in a sustainable way or making art that platforms the issue of climate change and can we do both? Um, Ruth or Fern, would either of you like to kick us off? Um, well, I think it's a really good provocation and it's something that we, the artists are thinking about, I hope, a lot at the moment. Um, my feeling, my personal feeling at the moment is that creating art in a sustainable way should be in the same way of thinking that we think about our lives in general. So we should be thinking about our life in a sustainable way and art is a part of our life so therefore that's just another part of it um, and we need to embed it embody that that sustainable ethos in every single thing we do much as robin you were just describing um, whether or not we should platform um, these issues and how much of a responsibility we have to do so i think can be interpreted uh, in different ways um, for example if you think about art for social change and changing um, how people think about the world that we live in and making it a more inclusive 
environment for people that is actually part of the bigger system and part of the problems associated with climate change. So I think it's not just black and white. Are you doing something encouraging people to um, get rid of carbon in their lives? It's thinking about how the issue of social change is is the same argument. I don't know. Is that does that make any sense? Yeah, I'd say. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you, yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to bounce off that, Fern? Have you got anything? Yeah, I, I literally wrote down when you sent these provocations through, I literally wrote down exactly the same thing that you did, Ruth, in terms of um, are you as a human being working sustainably in the in the world that you live in? Are you passionate about that? Are you do you have things that you've changed in your in your sort of day to day life that then can kind of seep forward and out into your working environment and yeah, if you're not doing those things at home, I think it would be incredibly difficult to go into a working environment and practice those things if it's not something that is connecting with you in the first place. So I think first and foremost, we have to find um, the significance and the importance and we have to understand um, all of those things for ourselves as people uh, to then be able to then bring that into our sort of creative um, working practice. Um, and then I was sort of going to say that I think I think you can work um, creatively uh, and have that sustainable practice going on and not necessarily make work that is about climate change or how we can support the environment. But I certainly think if you're making work that is about doing that, then you have to have the underpinning of sustainability within your organisation in the first place. So I think one could perhaps work without the other, but the other certainly can't work the other way around, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah I, I had another thought as well, which is um, I read a fair amount of books about um, about the world and sustainability and regenerative practice, that kind of thing. And those books, because I'm not a scientist, are quite often on the popular science end of things or they're on the philosophical end of things. And I think there really is a role for theatre to start talking about those things because people do want to read personal viewpoints um an example would be we are weather robin maybe you can remind me it's jonathan saffron for f-o-e-r but i've no idea how you pronounce it and that book was really fundamental for me because he talks about how difficult it is to make changes in your life and it both made me feel positive about what I could do and also uh, I felt that there was someone else talking about how hard it is and so that was a book that you can see on Waterstone's table in an airport or something um, and to see those sort of subjects raised on a theatrical platform I think would be really brilliant and obviously that there aren't that many it's it's considered quite niche. Mm -hmm. I've just put in the it's an Amazon link for my sins uh, it was the first thing that I found but yeah Jonathan Jonathan, Jonathan Safran Foer um we are the weather saving the planet begins at breakfast um I totally I, I think the human the human side of things is where for me this provocation really comes in um from a platforming perspective and from a practice point of view I think like we focus at Ergon really on making sure that our work is looking at the grey zone isn't attacking anyone for not being an eco-warrior and is focusing on human stories not on all of the statistics that I've just gone through in that presentation um our first show for example asks the question what would you put first the future of the planet or your family and that is a real thing that people are having to come up against all the time within this movement I mean, it's really hard because actually you can't answer that question. Um, I do think from a, it's interesting when you say, Fern, from a, can you, am I right in saying that you sort of said, can you put work on if you're not working sustainably? Was that what you said? Yeah, I raised the question about the, um, the efficacy and uh, sort of ethics behind making a piece of work that is about sustainability. If you aren't, um, promoting sustainable practices within your work in the first place and how that works um, and why you would do that because if you were interested in in creating a platform for a piece of work that is you know is going to sort of talk about these things 
why would you want to do that if you weren't actually passionate about it in the first place enough to sort of create those practices in your, your environment as well mm. it's so interesting because because when i i agree with that i do i have a thing where though where this isn't a but it's an and i'm just making sure it is an and um particularly given that the arts council's demand for environmental responsibility now um and i don't want to shout this too loudly but i'm not entirely sure the arts council know what they mean by that completely but that's okay we need to make steps forward um lots of arts organizations are going to be pro programming work that is climate change based now because they have to um and that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be working sustainably like you say but i do i do wonder with that in mind whether it can have the reverse effect actually that if there is work being put on that's about climate change exactly what you're saying is that if you've got that going on in your building surely you feel really hypocritical and so you start to question your practice anyway and so i wonder if it can work both uh, ways a little bit that's just the way that that sort of we we work as an organization it wouldn't have feel it wouldn't feel ethically right to, to do that um but i i think perhaps there is scope there for um a little bit of a get out you could make a piece of work couldn't you about about it and perhaps then you're ticking the right fundable boxes and all things like that but actually you know looking looking deeper and sort of uh getting underneath that what are you actually doing and are you doing things that are gonna you know make an actual difference to your organization or to your company or to whoever you're working with um so i think for, for me it's like that has to be the core of what you're doing your ethical practice has to be the core and then you want to make work because you're passionate about it and you have a fantastic idea or you want to use your platform and your voice to sort of promote conversation then that's that's an additional extra great thing that you could be doing but that's that's just my opinion and the sort of the way that i see it i i wish that uh, all organizations did <laughs> it always work like that but it's good it's, i think it's that's such an important ethic and ethos to have and it's that that we want to we want everybody watching to kind of try and take on and if i think if the next the next generation of artists are doing that then i think we can change our sector for the better we have to um i always think it's a good place to jump off from to go to our next provocation um which was what are your golden rules when making work with environmental responsibility in mind and what if any obstacles have you found that's more specific to outdoors or site specific work um yes over to well, i'm gonna i'm gonna jump right in um so uh when we were making um our work the old green time machine which is our family friendly uh, uh ethical sort of climate change show and um, we were speaking to lots of environmental charities in the research stages and one thing that kept coming up with people um was this idea of and not being afraid to sorry fern just just lost what you said that last bit at the beginning of sorry. The thing that kept coming back for people was this idea of making sure that you're telling the truth, regardless of the age group or people that you're working with, so that we are completely honest. And, and there's a bit of pushback, especially working in sort of primary school settings that we don't frighten people, we don't give them too much information or we don't give them information that seems frightening or scary. Um, but a lot of these um, organizations and charities that we were working with were saying, well, actually it is a little bit scary. And we've, we have every right to feel a bit frightened by, by some of this. And not that it's our intention to go out and scare people, but it is, our, um, it is the thing that we need to do to tell the truth and to be honest in our conversations. And if that feels a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, sitting in that uncomfortable moment and going, this is what it really is, let's let's be honest let's be open about that and then give people sort of something that then can empower them moving out of that state so for us the, the first golden rule we're making the work was let's be honest let's be honest about what we're talking about here um, and regardless of who we're talking about it with don't try and dumb it down sugarcoat it you know make it an easy conversation it feels better we have to have those difficult conversations to be able to actually implement real change so that was sort of the first thing that we were looking at in terms of golden rules and um, and then the other thing when we were looking at golden rules was this idea of building sustainability in and um, right at the planning stages of a project so not having this fantastic idea making this amazing piece of work and then at the end going oh uh, how do i now reduce the carbon footprint of this piece of work and trying to sort of you know do that at the end when everything's already been made and created 
it's a case of actually when you're starting to come up with these ideas, thinking about that from the very beginning. And so the actual project becomes built around that, if that makes sense. Um, so those were sort of our two golden rules. And then one thing that I'll just say about obstacles and things that are challenging, when you're touring dance work, especially in outdoor settings, um, people want a spectacle. People want something really big, really visual. Um, and you go to dance festivals up and down the country and you've got incredibly huge sets with people flying off things. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. But the sort of touring logistics that surround having that kind of scale work and that being what's needed in the industry is really difficult and really challenging because it immediately is going to increase your carbon footprint. You're going to be creating new sets a lot of the time that can't come from sort of reused recycled materials because they have to be structurally sound and safe and that's really difficult for set designers to build those sort of structures we're having to hire vans to take these bits of equipment to and from different locations probably your cast aren't all going to fit in a van that only has three seats at the front you might then need people to get the stuff out of the van so the you know working in an outdoor setting um sometimes can actually increase increase the need for all the equipment that then makes the whole work uh, more sort of um, yeah environmentally unfriendly um, so we've we've started carbon offsetting for any projects where we can't do things like carpooling or traveling on public transport um, you'd be really surprised at things you can't take on public transport we um, some friends of ours were doing a piece with some big plant pots and the plant pots were about this big and they can't take them on the train they they get told that they can't take them so they started doing this really ingenious thing where they were getting ski bags for ski boots because if it's in a luggage bag apparently that makes it okay so if you can fit all of your props and scenery into a ski bag then you're an absolute winner um so there's always that as a handy tip but anything that fit in those bags is going to have to go in a van which you know is is creating sort of yeah more carbon emissions so that's just something that we're sort of dealing with as we're touring and beginning to tour larger scale works to different places it's so useful i mean so many things you said first of all the whole luggage bag thing is is i'm i'm gonna take that tip for the genius <laughs> it, it wasn't for me i will give complete credit to kapow dance theater oh, nice. they know nice. <laughs> <laughs> um but that honestly i think the honesty thing is so so important um and I, just very quickly because i want to hear what you've got to say ruth but just very quickly that i think particularly with young people um i can i get quite frustrated actually because i see quite a lot of call outs from uh, different funding bodies or even academic funding bodies for for the arts to uh make make work for young people that involve like educates them or involves and obviously that is important but on the issue of climate change that can frustrate me quite a lot of the time particularly when it's looking at anybody from 10 8 I'm, to be honest you know how young young people know about climate change quite often a heck of a lot more than the older people do um so i think that being honest with them is great because they know a whole, an awful lot anyway um i'm not going to keep talking ruth i'm going to go go over to you because I, val I value your brain much more than mine <laughs> um yeah, well, it's really good to hear about it from Fern's perspective, because Fern, you run a company, right? Yeah, and I am freelance, so I um, wait for the job to come and then have to work within the system of the people who I'm working for, which brings with it a whole set of different questions and challenges. Um, sometimes it's really easy because you're working for someone who who is thinking about all of this and um, it's a conversation and that's great but sometimes you have to push a bit harder so I don't know how many of you on this call know about the Theatre Green book which has been trialled for the last year um, and has been developed with the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre and, the and the Royal Opera House as a way of giving designers and production teams a code of how to start preparing work in a sustainable way. So the easy win for me as a freelance designer is to say I'd like to work, I'd like to make this show as a green book show. And that is now becoming fairly straightforward because it would be quite a lot of egg on the face for a company to say no sorry you can't do that. So that's great, that's really positive. What's harder 
is scratching a bit deeper maybe um, and to go a bit further so for example working for some of our bigger cultural organizations who have some funding from places that I might not feel completely comfortable with um, means either I have to scrutinize my own ethical code and work out how much that job means to me um, or I have to somehow use my influence to, to say something which I'm sometimes not brave enough to do or don't feel empowered enough to do but I'm that's what I'm working on I'm getting a bit better that yeah that the funding thing's really hard isn't it um yeah because a lot of the time you feel that you're for want of a much kinder term at the bottom of the ladder and the little person and how is that gonna how what difference is you saying no gonna make or questioning things gonna make but I think you do have to really back yourself um... you have to engage with it and what I often feel but I feel this about lots of things in my life is that uh there's a ball of wool and I think all oh, right I've got to I've got to check who this organization bank with and so I start pulling at this thread but the more I pull the more questions it come up and so I'm just pulling and pulling and pulling going at what point do I stop because especially in opera you know you're there are there's a vast amount of privilege within this world not not totally um throughout it but but certainly a lot of the people who come um so it's where the ball of wool stops or where you stop pulling it is sort of what i'm wrestling with and that's what that book is so good on uh, not that it has any answers i warn you spoiler <laughs> good. Ah, gosh um, yeah, we had Ergon, just quick anecdote, we, um, on the Wicked Problem actually, on the first show we were doing in Manchester, I'm not going to name organisations because I don't want to bad mouth, but there was an organisation we were partnered with alongside Julie's Bicycle, Contact Theatre and Arts Admin, all these brilliant, th brilliant organisations um, who were going to be giving us one and a half grand and that, you know, is quite a lot of money, that's at least three people getting paid for a week or extra big or paying for a set designer to come in or whatever it is it's a lot of money um and they had had ties with shell in the past this organization but we talked about that they no longer had that they were doing a massive decarbonization push changing the whole venue all of the staff were trained in this stuff like really good um and so we were moving forward with them uh but then there was i don't know if you remember but there was a a, a carbon carbon capture exhibition at the London Science Museum and that was funded by Shell which is very 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 suspect given that carbon capture is very convenient for fossil fuel companies um, and that wasn't great so that made us start thinking okay we need to think about this this that because because the company we were working with or oh, I might have given a bit too much information are under the same umbrella as London Science Museum the part of the Science Museum group um, then a young, then Extinction Rebellion, some youth activists went in and uh, protested this exhibition and got quite unceremoniously manhandled out of the building by police and that wasn't good. Um, but still at that stage we were still having a conversation with this organisation of we know that the company name is different to the people in the organisation, that we know that you are really supportive of what we're doing, the cause, and also we're having an honest conversation with us about the situation and going is it right for us to continue together. Um, so even then we were still battling with that ethical thing of is it right to put these people down but the final straw was when after we'd been told by those people that we could say F shell essentially in our show if we wanted to even if money might have indirectly come from them the final thing was when Science Museum Group CEO came out and said we want to work with shell so that we can change things and have a conversation and then Channel 4 whistle blew the fact that Science Museum Group had a gagging order um with shell so they couldn't say anything about shell and that was the thing that made mm -hmm. the money down but th i just i say that as an anecdote to say that there are so many steps along the way that you can either decide i'm going to boycott and get out of this and try and make a statement or you can try and have that conversation and see weedle out where can you have an influence but eventually i mean it was shell i think we would always have pulled out because it was shell but it is really really difficult when that's the difference between a person's paycheck or not and yeah. Shell aren't going to care that we didn't work with that company. So, um, anyway, that was a lot, lot of talking for me. Um, 
I'm going to th uh, th fly us on to the third provocation, but we could talk about other stuff we've got to as well, um, which is through the lens of the climate crisis, what does empowerment or empowering others mean for you? Quite a big question. Um, well, from, for me as an artist, you know, you, can, you can't really choose not to be an artist. So I sort of think that I have to use that chosen path to do something. Um, and it's only a small influence, uh, but it's sort of what I've got. So for me, the empowerment is knowing that doesn't the size of your impact is not relative to the strength of your feeling. And we can all, we can't all change shape. We're not shape shifters. So you have to just use what you got. Mm. Um, and to sort of just pinball off that, um, we've been very much focused on um, making small changes and empowering people to make small changes that become habitual. And it's this idea of, um, yeah, like you say, you might have massive dreams and ambitions to change the planet and change the world, but the things that you're actually capable of might not sort of match those things. And actually then it becomes unsustainable for you. And uh, especially when you're talking about this with young people and trying to um, create long lasting change, it's finding things that people can do that become part of, of their habits and they just become something that you do without thinking about. Mm -hmm. So that we don't have this amazing conversation now and in a month's time, all the things we spoke about, because they were so unattainable, they've, they've disappeared and you've not been able to manage to carry on doing them. Um, the way that we found uh, to sort of empower people the, the sort of most effectively, um, and this is just from our perspective, is to give people small things that are actually doable, they are achievable, and they can become part of just your, your daily existence that then, you know, in two months time, you go, I've been doing this for two months, I didn't even realise I was doing it. And if you can do that, then it can build and it can grow. And yeah, not, not overwhelming people with, oh, you need to boycott your MP every week, you need to do this. And, you know, it's not, you're not going to do that every, every week. It's just not, it's not sustainable. So what can you do? What can you do every day? And how can you just change your thinking methods um, and sort of sharing that information and creating open spaces where people can have conversations about it and they can feel that they can ask questions and you can get it wrong and you can say the wrong thing and you can talk about it and you can chat it out and you can figure out the things that you can do with other people. So we've been trying to create these spaces when we do our, when we do our work, we have time afterwards where it's like a stay and play session. But part of that stay and play is also about conversation and having those conversations and opening up dialogue with everybody to try and, you know, just make it more of a safe space to talk about these things so that, yeah, you can implement those sort of sustainable changes, habitual changes. Mm -hmm. Fern, you put that so well. That's brilliant. Yeah. I think, um, you know, this idea of positive change is quite important that if you're, if, if we're just sustainable, then we're staying the same. But if we can actually do something positive, then we're making a difference, even if that is just one person deciding that they're never going to buy water in a plastic bottle again and not getting too de depressed or downhearted when you realise the enormity of the issue. Um, and very quickly, my anecdote on that is that I've got a teenage son and he's in a South London school mm. and um, in his canteen, the water is sold in small plastic bottles. This is a school where he has 450 in his year alone. It's massive. So you can imagine the scale of the water. Not only was there no plastic recycling, um, but this was the only way to get water. And so he's, you know, he went up and he tried to talk to his tutor. He tried to talk to his year lead. He even went slightly higher up and he hit a brick wall. So he went to his friends and some of them are on side, some of them aren't. And he was getting really low about it because there was, he, he realized there was nothing he could do. Um, but in order to sort of 
get himself back on track. He just started making the smaller changes. So his friends now do not take the water in the plastic bottles and that is a win. And he'll just make those small changes and he'll feel good about them rather than feeling that he personally is responsible for the huge amount of plastic waste coming out of his school. Hmm. That's amazing. What a fantastic, what a fantastic son you've got. Yeah, but what a, I was about to swear, what a rubbish school. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I mean. But I think, I think, yeah, for, I agree with everything that you guys have said and I don't want to repeat everything too much, but like we focus a lot on um, the finite pool of worry theory at Ergon, the idea that we've only got so much space in our brains to worry about things. Um, and if you're worrying about things like rent, where the food's going to come from, a big existential crisis like climate change probably isn't going to quite fit in your finite pool of worry and that that is okay and i think it's the way we try to empower people is to say that is okay kind of like what you were saying fern that we can only do what we can when we can where we can um but to remember that the biggest superpower we have as individuals is the power of influence because we as human beings are um powerful and infectious you know as individuals we do something and just by doing it, someone else observing it may begin to do it themselves, just like how your son, you know, has has influenced their, their school friends. Um, I also uh, would try and with the whole thing of like achievable steps is a thing that we again look at, which is the journey of journey through competence, we call it the idea that everyone starts off with anything being unconsciously incompetent is and you don't know you're doing something wrong for want of a better term. Um, but just the act of being consciously incompetent is huge. Just being aware that your everyday life has an impact is a really positive thing. It changes the conversation. Um, and eventually you can be consciously competent and then practice makes perfect and you might be unconsciously competent, but you'll never be that all the time. So nobody's perfect. Um, and I'd love to just, given that we've got a couple minutes and because of what you talked about with your son, Ruth, just share my screen as well. Uh, share my screen as well. Share my screen to just show you um, one other thing quickly. Oh, that's uh, Coalesce's website. That's not what I'm showing you. Uh, not that I'd love, wouldn't love to. It's just this. Uh, and it's when we're talking about uh, our power of influence that we have as individuals, as organisations. And it's kind of what your son did a little bit, to be honest. Um, this is created by GMAS, Greater Manchester Arts Sustainability Team. And what we do is you put yourself, uh, yeah, feel free to screenshot this because if there's nothing. Yeah, that was me, sorry. No, 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 that's great. If there's nothing else you get from this whole thing, this is really important. Place yourself in the middle and consider what action you can take and what influence you can actually have regarding one of these six Ps. So your son, for example, considered what action can they take and what influence can they have uh, so they thought about their their position is as a student, so they could only go to the people in power and okay that didn't quite work but brilliant they did what they could they knew where they, they knew they were a student when that didn't work they then considered their position as a colleague and friend of other people um, and so they went down to the people thing and they thought what people can I influence and they were in, your son was influencing their friends and as artists that's a huge one because we can influence our audiences if nothing else but also all the people we work with. Um, consider your position and what action you can take from a planning point of view. Again, you know, your son planning with friends, you know, making a plan. What can I do? The little things, you know, everything like that. Um, consider what action and influence you can have over the place. Um, are there recycling bins in the place? Is it is the building you're in renewable energy? OK, you might not be in a if you're touring and you're working in other venues and you don't own that venue. It's a lot harder, for example, to control what energy they're using. You can still ask the question. Um, consider what influence you can have and what action you can take regarding your practice specifically. We've talked about that a lot. Um, and consider what influence and action you can have in terms of policy. Are you someone that, if you're in charge of your own organisation, can create policy? Um, or can you ask an organisation you're in if they have an environmental policy or carbon action plan? If they don't, can you ask them if they would consider to do that? Um, and basically, for me, this is something that's really useful in my individual life, but particularly in professional life and within the arts to always consider what level of influence I can have regarding these things. And within that influence, taking an action if I can. Um, and exactly as we said before, you can only do what you can, where you can, when you can. Um, but I think that's really important. Um, that's bang on two o'clock. Look at that. Um, do either of you guys have any anything you'd uh, sort of like to add before we before we sign off? 
Uh, I've written down finite ball of worry, and I've also written down consciously incompetent. I think they're two very helpful things. Um, and I would just say, if it, if it feels really overwhelming, let it sit with you. Let it sit with you for a little bit of time and, and pick it back up again. Say to yourself, I'm going to pick it back up again and think about it again tomorrow. And in that time that you've sat here today and felt really saturated in all of this information and gone, I don't know where I am within all of this and what that feels like. It will feel better tomorrow and you'll come back to it fresh and you just don't know in that time period how your brain and your body processes all of that information and it might feel clearer with a little bit of time away from it and you can come back to it and it's not that you're not committed to it right in this second right now it doesn't have to be right this second right now be kind to yourself because it is a lot of information and it is it's frightening and it's scary um, but you're not on your own and everybody like I say at the beginning everybody's on a journey and we're all still learning and we're trying to do the right thing. So yeah, try not to feel too overwhelmed. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. Mindfulness, empowerment, so important. Being kind to ourselves, being kind to others as well within that. Some people, it's not that people don't care. It's just that there's a lot going on in the world. We've all got our crosses to bear. Um, and yeah, we, we can do it as well. I think really important. And I would just signpost things like Theatre Green Book, uh, GMAST as well. And I'm, happy again anybody who watches this if they get in touch with creative you can get in touch with me or through ergon theater or you can find burn through coalesce i'm sure the website um but i'm always happy to answer any questions and there are loads of groups around doing loads of brilliant things and lots of fantastic resources out there to help um and we need to be asking the questions because finally i'd like to say that diversity and inclusivity is the most important thing when we're talking about climate change and that's not from a, it, well, it is, but it's not from any more from an ethical and idealistic kind of point of view. Every, anybody's obstacle to, uh, to live it, having a smaller carbon footprint is not just their obstacle, it is everybody's obstacle. And I live a very narrow lens of lived experience as a white, cisgender, straight, middle-class, southern man. There are obstacles I will not see. So we need to keep talking to each other. We need to consider diversity and inclusivity so we can all work on this and move up together. Because in a way, climate change has the capacity to be the great equaliser and could be the thing that actually brings a level of world peace, maybe. Yay. <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, anybody who, who tunes in to, to watch this. And thank you so much to Creative Youth uh, UK for having us. And good luck to everybody uh, as part of Views International Festival. Uh, and well done for what you're doing. Keep, keep fighting the good fight. Um, thanks so much, Ruth. Thanks so much, Fern. Um, and thanks very much. <laughs>